Well, good morning. Praise the Lord. I uh, want to be careful about the volume. I think there's a difference between what is going into your recording and what's coming out there, right? So if I quieten down by backing up, then you get a... All right, let's see. Okay. There seem to be different speakers this morning, and it can have a piercing uh, sound and certain, uh, when you emphasize certain things, just that extra. Brothers, uh, I appreciate that I preach, um, shall we say, a little longer than half an hour, and that brothers want to give the time for that. But I also want to make sure that any brother that comes to meeting with a word on their heart from the Lord would have the liberty to share it. So don't, uh, don't let that, which our brother said, stop you. I would happily um, give that opportunity. I preach and I've got Sean uh, using his gift as well because I believe that one of the primary responsibilities for us is the continual teaching and expounding of the Holy Scriptures. And um, to not be negligent. You know, we can... It's not participation for participation's sake. It's for the Word of God and Christ to be manifest in the midst. And so I want to encourage and give space for brothers to exercise a gift. Um, but I also don't want to be negligent. So trying to keep those things going. So brothers, don't, uh, don't ever quench what God's given you. We can adjust the, the preaching... Um, I mean, it'd be nice not to just have the whole hour disappear like that, but uh, if you had a, a word and that uh, the Lord had put on your heart for the church, by all means, please share that. All right, well, let us, uh, let's continue in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Things go as we uh, are hoping We'll finish the chapter this, uh, this week and Sean will start chapter 3 next week. And we, we talked about that. We'll see how we do. So that we're not, um, so that the flow of the scriptures is not interrupted. You know, where we take breaks here and there and then we lose track. There is a flow to the scripture. The letter to the Ephesians, it's interesting, these uh, various scholars, they're not... Uh, they're not content with the, the expertise of those that are, have labored and, you know, the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Ephesians. And they want to question, was it really written to the Ephesians? And Bible scholars have to go to great lengths to prove that this was an epistle written by Paul and uh, whether it's appropriately named and so on. Spare yourselves the trouble. Uh, it is true, and you can read the Ephesian letter. It does not include the personal connections that is so common in Paul's epistles. Uh, the Thessalonian epistles, 1 and 2, it's clear of Paul's relationship with them. The Thessalonian, did I say Thessalonian? The Corinthian and the Thessalonian epistles, both of them. Both of, you know, two letters each. Clearly there's a relationship going. The Philippian letter... There's a relationship that's manifest. Uh, the, let, the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus. 
Philemon. Uh, I think even the Colossian letter bears evidence. Uh, writing to the Romans whom he'd never sent. He addresses them personally. Um, but the Ephesian letter does not seem to have any characteristics that are personal. And it's quite simple. You, you can read uh, in the Colossian letter that Paul says exchange with Laodicea. And at this time in his ministry, Paul was starting to write circular letters. Letters to be distributed. And uh, at the heading of each one, he would write to the specific church. So probably this same Ephesian letter was written to several churches. And he would write the heading on each one. And the one that was addressed to the Ephesians is the one that carries today. Now, very straightforward. Uh, <clears throat> but the church at Ephesus did receive this letter and it was addressed to them. The good news in that is this is not, there's not really anything here that's um, local specific. The Ephesian letter is written to all churches through all ages, as, as is the Roman letter, um, notwithstanding its address there, to all that be in Rome, loved of God, called to be saints. Ephesian letter is a very generic letter written to all of Christendom through all of time. And that is not by accident, that is by the design of God. And Paul in here is setting out the um, how Jesus is going to make one fold. We looked last week where John records in chapter 10, Jesus said, Other sheep have I which are not of this fold, the Jewish mosaic fold. That's the Gentiles. Them also must I bring, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. One new covenant that will embrace Jew and Gentile uh, and Christ as Lord over all. And Paul is now um, going and fleshing out and showing the details of how Jesus accomplished that and what he accomplished. We looked last time that he's broken down the middle wall of partition, which although physically it could be referencing the wall then in existence in the temple that kept the Gentiles in their place at the back. But more than that, and the context of the epistle bears it out, the law of ordinances and commandments, not the moral law, right? And the law doesn't say, hey, this part's moral and this part is ceremonial, but it is, it's clear, it's obvious <clears throat> that there are moral components to the law and there are ceremonial components to the law. The apostle talks about these things are shadows and figures. Right? The tabernacle and all the laws concerning the tabernacle. And the sprinkling with hyssop and so on. Paul says very plainly in writing to the Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. These things are shadows and figures. They're in the law. They were commanded to do them. But they weren't the real thing. They were pictured. But the commandment to not murder, that wasn't a shadow. See, now we can just put that commandment aside and kill it at your pleasure. That's ridiculous. That's the moral component. And in fact, more than just not killing somebody, um, 
you don't even uh, abuse them verbally. You don't call them names. You don't, uh, you're in danger of hellfire if you tell your brother that he is morally deficient, calling him a fool. Fool doesn't just mean idiot, you know, um, low IQ. Fool means somebody void of the knowledge of God. And so uh, he's saying that he's, he's not done away with the righteousness of the law. He's done away with the ceremonial commandments. This is plain. And we don't, uh, don't have the time to have to prove that as if we had some opposition to it this morning. And so that's what Paul, we were looking at that, that Paul has uh, set forth what Christ has done. He has made Jew and Gentile one. That seems kind of moot to us because, you know, it's a Gentile church. But remember that Christianity, as it's called, is a Jewish religion. It's the unfolding of the faith of Abraham. Right? Then the Mosaic law was given to the seed of Abraham, the flesh and blood seed and circumcision and all of those things. And God made a covenant, an everlasting covenant, with the physical flesh and blood descendants of Abraham. Circumcision, the seal of that. He has made a new covenant that now includes and adds Gentiles to that. There's so many Gentiles now in the church and so few Jews that we kind of have lost sight of that. But may I say, brethren, that there is a picture of what Jesus is doing in his kingdom given for us in the life of Joseph. Let me just sketch that out very quickly. And, and uh, I shouldn't delve into because I haven't really read on it. I'm just going hearsay that the, the rabbis pre to the time of Christ said that if Israel was ready for Messiah, righteous, they would get mis- in the Hebrew, right? Moshiach ben uh, David. Ben David. Messiah, the son of David. A king, a ruler. And if they were not ready, they would get Moshiach ben Yosef. Messiah, son of Joseph. And what's significant about that? Joseph was a type of Christ. All men have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Adam's transgression was a willful disobedience to the known commandment of God. And even those that there's no record of that, death reigns over them through sin and all of the um, unintended and personality and, and character sins, grouchiness and all sorts of things that Christ never had. <clears throat> But Joseph is uh, one of few. He might be the only one. Because even Daniel was recorded as confessing his sins. Joseph, I think, in all of the Old Testament, is, um, there's no sin recorded in his life. Might be mistaken there, but I think that's the case. You could argue he was a bit brash with his brothers. You know, hey, look at the dream I had. But there is no sin recorded nor sin confessed in the life of Joseph. Not because he never had any, but because there's a picture being set forth there. What you have with Joseph was the the favored of the father, who was hated by his brethren, 
who were still children of the covenant, rejected and in a figure killed by them, raised up from the dead, and he became the savior of the Gentiles. And he was stripped of all of his Hebrew, his Jewish appearance. He was clean shaven so that he was unrecognizable to his brethren. And then at the end he was made known to them and he became Lord of all, Jew and Gentile. It's a picture there of the unfolding of the kingdom of Messiah. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people and the faith of Christ, originally Jewish, has been shaved as it were and stripped so that it is not recognizable anymore as a Jewish religion. But there is coming a day when They shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And all Israel shall be saved, as Paul uh, pointed out. That if the casting away of them be the riches of the Gentiles, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? That day is yet coming. But here, right, it's a bit circuitous, right? We've gone a bit of of a tour but remember what we're looking at. We're, we're wanting to make sense of Paul's words. They apply to us today. And we can't lose sight of the importance of it just because Christendom at large is Gentile. <laughs> With um, very few Jews. That, and certainly when they come in there's pressure on them to kind of look like and act like Gentiles. Here have a ham sandwich and all of those things that Christians seem to feel the need to um, push on Jews, and Paul would have none of that. He wouldn't want us doing that at all. Art thou called in circumcision? Any called in circumcision? Let him not become uncircumcised. In other words, let him continue to keep the whole law and the Passover feasts and the two sets of plates and all of those things and the Sabbath. If a Jew converts, he should keep all of those things. <clears throat> but he's abolished the, the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, right? The, the things where Peter said um, it is an unlawful thing for a Jew to come unto one of another nation. Christ has abolished that. Uh, there's no more, um, you know, can't sit on that chair and all of those things. They can sit and eat together. And have fellowship. And Peter was doing this as well. Um, Peter had shed, if I understand Paul correctly to the Galatians, he'd shed some of the rigors of the Old Testament. Um, And he was having fellowship with the Gentile believers in Antioch. And then when the the hardcore Jewish brothers, zealous of the law, came from Jerusalem, Peter's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I don't want to get in trouble. You know, know, and we, we have those things among us here. Uh, the peer pressure to keep the outward traditions. Um, and so he, he separated from the Gentiles, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Peter? Peter was bold in the face of death when he was filled with the Holy Ghost. Yes, but you and I have to walk in that every day. The flesh, while you're in the body, it's still there. And so you have to walk after the Spirit. If you don't, you same old whatever. In Peter's case... Cowardice in front of the group. That was his flesh. It wasn't a common thing. It wasn't a daily back and forth. But here he was. I suppose he was just so enjoying the fellowship. He wasn't walking real close with the Lord at that season. I don't know. 
Everybody and his influence, Barnabas, the whole crew went. Paul had to stand alone against them all. Mm. <clears throat> so Peter, but Paul said to him, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do Jews? So Peter had shed a lot of those extra things, right? It's just tiring, tiring to have to keep on top of all of the physical things. And we experience that, and I don't want to stir a controversy, but, you know, the sisters seem to bear the lion's share of the outward things that we think are so important, and I'm not knocking them at all, obviously. A family came from the city like that. But, you know, the the, um, nitpicky modesty and head covering and all of those things and try and sort out going hiking or going for a swim with families and you know keeping male and females and all of those things that are inconvenient and can be irritating if you're not keeping your heart fresh right similar kind of thing can happen and uh yeah anyway i don't want to wade in there and create a stir but you can look at it we it's a tendency of man And all of those things. And people who might make reasonable concessions in specific situations can all of a sudden feel the pressure and tighten up when the real strict hardcore ones are around. Brethren, you know what I'm talking about? Those kinds of things among us? Um, And maybe not necessarily right here in our little group, but generally widespread. We want to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Which is hypocrisy. Let us beware. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. Christ abolished in his flesh the law of, of, um, of ordinances. The, the law contained ordinances. Or, um, law of commandments. Uh, morning and evening sacrifice. Ritual laws. The washing of hands and pots and so on. Let's look at... Um, Look at that. And he's uh, to <clears throat> having abolished in his flesh, verse 15 of chapter 2, the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints. And of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth. Unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. <clears throat> and Lord, it's uh, this our gathering this morning is a weekly exercise. We have daily exercises, Lord, both spiritual and physical, and they maintain our life and cause growth. Father, we don't merely want to go through a routine, but truly take life into our souls. 
Help us, Lord, as we fight the perennial battle against uh, busyness, against a dissipated life that doesn't focus daily on Christ. But, Lord, that we would keep thy word in our hearts and meditate on thee all the day long. Walk with thee, Father. Be those that are continuously about thy business and engage with thy kingdom. We heard it prayed this morning, Father, that how easily we are distracted through our own lack of taking hold with a grip on Christ. Strengthen us, Father. We think of little babes and their reflex that can cling to a finger, but still quite feeble. Oh, may our grips be strengthened to be even as Christ. Be with our hearts and minds as we consider thy scriptures uh, this morning. Amen. And amen. The enmity. We looked last time at having slain the enmity. And we noted that it had to do with the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Paul writes similar things to the Colossians. And he wrote the letters about the same time. Chapter In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, It pleased the Father that in him, that is Christ, should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. And again, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, You being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, And took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you. And he goes on, the holy day, which which are a shadow of things to come. And we see there what we noticed last time, that this was a dual thing. That he didn't just take away the commandments of uh, ceremony. He slew that which made us at enmity with God. It wasn't just one. It's all the enmity. The enmity. And Paul's very economical. And he does this regularly in the scriptures. He puts a double, sometimes a triple meaning in a single statement. Or he'll allude to something. The spiritual using the physical language. He, uh, He slew the enmity. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. Verse 16 in uh, Ephesians 2. That he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. Having slain the enmity thereby. Reconciling us to each other and to God. For the Jew and the Gentile he removed that wall that he had erected by the law of Moses. The ceremonial law. And between God and man he removed the sinner. He didn't only forgive the sins that we have committed. He took that old Adam. That Adam, Adamic nature that persists in the flesh. In each human soul. He nailed it to his cross. 
This is why Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. The idea that, you know, we have to crucify ourselves, just think about that. How are you going to do that? The most you're going to get is two feet and one arm, and this one's a dangling. How is this last arm going to crucify itself? It's just not a thing. Crucified with Christ. The old man, the flesh, they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Past tense. Just need to walk in it. Just need to believe the gospel. You just need to believe the gospel. Christian and unbeliever. So many people want to walk by sight. When I feel it working, then I'll believe it. Now think about why that's never going to work. If you believe on the Lord Jesus, think, think about what happened. There's probably some exception somewhere that God has made. I don't know. There are usually exceptions to generalizations. But the way somebody becomes what we call you know, saved is they hear the gospel. Christ died for sins. And they believe that yes, even my sins were laid on Christ. And I'm forgiven. And they believe that before they feel it. Isn't that right? They just respond in their hearts with thankful faith. And God converts them. Seals them with the Holy Spirit. Many of them feel something afterwards. They feel clean. They feel forgiven and so on. But notice the order of things. They weren't there. When I feel forgiven, then I'll believe I'm forgiven. God might, I don't know, I'm not going to tell you yes or no. I just don't want to get distracted with that one testimony of that one person where God made them feel forgiven before they believed and now tip all of Scripture on its head because of that one testimony. Let's leave that aside and deal with what is normal and what the Bible itself lays out. You believe the word of God. Your gaze and the focus of your attention is away from yourself on the work of God. And thereby believing God does a work in you. And brother and sister, the way of emancipation from fleshly lust is very similar. Paul said to the Romans or wrote to them, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Think about the gospel. Believe this fact and now walk in it. So many people, well, I feel this and I feel that, and therefore it's not working. <laughs> Away with it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Baptized into his death. Our old man is crucified with him. Hallelujah. It's the truth. Thank you, Lord. And I can tell you that truth set me free. Hallelujah. It wasn't by grit. I had grit before I was born again. I'll tell you, grit will run out. And it's a grind. And you mechanics that get grit in your engines know what I'm talking about. It's just not a thing. Grit will not get you walking with God. The power of the gospel ministered to your soul through you trusting in Christ. Lord, I believe you. Hallelujah. Not a... You see, it's all through the Gospels. The physical healings mark out the way of faith. Go show yourselves to the priests. Well, this is going to be dumb. Look at me. Can you imagine? They just didn't think about it. And there's so many people's trouble is they think too much and don't believe enough. 
That's what my teachers taught me, and they were right, teachers in Christ. And I'm thankful to God that he has helped me to be what we're called as Christians, a believer. Believe the Lord. He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. All right. So I think we've reviewed and we've uh, underlined that verses 15. We've reviewed the chapter and we've underlined verses 15 and 16. He's slain the enmity. He did it in the cross. And meditate on these things, brethren. He's reconciled both together unto God. Right? Verse 15 talks about, or verse 14, 15, broken down the middle wall of partition between us, and he's reconciled both to God. Slain the enmity. All enmity is gone. Enmity between one another and between God. And I'll say this, brethren. If the enmity between Jew and Gentile that was ordained of God in the first place has been destroyed by the cross of Christ, then the enmity between any Christian and another Christian has been likewise destroyed. And it is a rejection of the work of God to live otherwise. We need to get a hold of this. Um, That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, I in thee. They all might be one in us. But I disagree with you, so I'm leaving. It's not a thing in the Bible. It's not a thing. Uh, and we would never tolerate that with husband and wife. We tell the one who's planning to leave that he needs to repent or she. So let's be clear on that. He's slain the enmity and we need to walk in the realities of that. <clears throat> And came and preached peace to you, to them which were, to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. Right? Remember in the early part of the chapter, first half, he's talking about remember. And we, we talked about that, the importance of remembering what we've been saved from. And how that keeps humbling us and motivating us. It's important to remember. Too easy to forget, become a self-righteous hypocrite. Remember, Paul did. So, you which were far off, this is part of his point. The Jews were near. The Gentiles were far off. And he's wanting to comfort this largely Gentile church and saying, you've been brought near. He came and preached peace. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Did Jesus Christ ever go to Ephesus? Paul says he did. And indeed, he did, but not in the flesh. He did it in, by his spirit, in the person of the preacher through whom he preached the gospel to them. In this case, Paul, um, Aquila and Priscilla had been there. Perhaps other believers. He came and preached peace. This this is a, a, a profound truth. Christ dwells in his people. His people walk in the spirit. 
when they share the gospel with someone, Christ is sharing the gospel with them. Paul is here um, <laughs> explaining or expounding or mentioning that which the Lord spoke and John records in, in um, chapter 15 or chapter 16. John, John 16, verse 8. Uh, Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient, it's necessary and good for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. How did he do that? I know there are stories of great revivals where people without any human agent are overcome with a sense of their sin and may God do it again. But we read in the book of Acts that he did it through the preaching of the apostles and we would assume by those who went everywhere preaching the word. They addressed sin, righteousness and judgment in their preaching and people were convicted This is how Jesus Christ came and preached peace to them. This is, uh, he said, I will come to you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. In the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, you know him for he dwelleth with you. Because he was embodied in Christ and shall be in you. And the, the cause of dissatisfaction with the Christian life in so many people is this lack of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And the Lord's solution to that is very plain. Ask and you shall receive. Ask like you mean it with all your heart. He came and preached uh, peace, the the Holy Spirit. Uh, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. We, we spent, uh, I think, several Sundays, months back now, looking at that uh, profound statement that Paul made, sealed with the, the Spirit. And we're not going to, although we could, spend another set of Sundays. Uh, we have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Brethren, the Christian life is not just a legal relationship. The the Old Covenant was primarily a legal relationship. They had very little, very few, very occasional um, experience of the manifest presence of God. And those times are recorded for us. Uh, So much for hundreds of years, you know, you talk about the word of the Lord was rare. There was no open vision. Moses, at one of the the highlights where the presence of God was visible in their midst, pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by day and by night. Moses lamented, would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That time was limited to 71. Well, if you like, 73. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, and then the 70 elders. And they all prophesied by the Spirit of the Lord. Very few people had the Spirit of God. The presence of God was outward. They would go three times a year to the tabernacle and later to the temple. 
And most of the time they would have no um, perception of the manifest presence of God. It was something they believed entirely and never felt, never had an inward sense. They could only rejoice in the beauty of the temple worship. The wonderful sounds of the singers and the players on music. With the uh, perfect instruction in the Hebrew um, intonation of the psalms. Music that I think has been uh, permanently lost. Wonderful. That was it though. They had access by the covenant to the Father. They had promises. The famous one, I think it's Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name shall you know, humble themselves and pray, then will I turn. They had access to God by the Mosaic covenant. And their prayers, they could hope, were answered. Um, Jabez called upon God, oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed. And God gave him that which he requested. But in the new covenant, we have access not merely legally. And this is why Paul writes it this way. By one spirit. To the Romans, he'll say, um, is it the Romans? Uh, yes, the spirit of sonship, spirit of adoption, crying, Abba, Father. And we're going to trace Paul's progression here in this last chapter, this last half of chapter 2 of Ephesians. You have access by the Holy Spirit. The communion that Jesus Christ had when he limited himself to human experience was not abstract. It wasn't intellectual. It wasn't just a belief in facts. He experienced a knowledge, a deep knowledge and communion of God by the Spirit. And this is what Paul is saying. We have access by the Spirit to the Father. This banishes loneliness from the Christian soul. Jesus said, all you shall forsake me and leave me alone, but I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He wasn't just talking himself into something that he believed from the Bible. It was something he lived and knew. I'm not alone. The Father is with me. And that presence was made, he was made conscious and aware of it continually through the Holy Spirit. Remember him limiting himself to human experience. And this is what the rupture on the cross was. Hast thou forsaken me? He knew that the Father was there. He said at the end, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But the Holy Ghost departed from Jesus Christ on the cross. And he bore and overcame entirely alone as a man. Incredible mystery. We have access by the Spirit. Uh, a real being, not only conscious beliefs. Let's uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Very briefly. Verse uh, 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. To drink. All right. Why does he put it that way? Drink. He didn't, it's not a metaphor. He didn't say we're all made to drink into one covenant. That's a metaphor. 
right? It talks about being satisfied through contemplation of the beauty and the riches of the covenant. Drink into one's spirit. He's talking about something that, if I can use a physical word, tangible. This is normative for the Christian. And any lack thereof should be thought of. Brethren, you don't find in your New Testament. You might hear some Christian talk about it as if it's just natural. I heard that not so long ago. You know, as if it's something normal. It is not normal. You know, I was going through a dry time spiritually. Well, there's something wrong then. That's not normal. Where's that in the New Testament? If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living waters. They're not going to dry up. It's not like the famine in the time of Elijah. Jesus said to the woman at the well, Whoso drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. This is a promise of God. Don't try. If if your experience doesn't line up with the words of Christ, go to Christ and get your experience to line up with his words. Don't try and twist his words to, to match up. This he spake of the spirit which they that believe on him should receive. Spirits likened unto water. Why do you drink water? Don't, please don't give me the health reasons. I know all of these are blah, blah, blah. Just normal, all right? You're outside, you're working in the garden, you're working on a job site, you're working hard, you're sweating, and you want a drink of water. Why? Brothers, this is an easy question. You're thirsty. Bang. 100%. Gold star. You drink because you're thirsty. What is thirst? If you were to put it in emotional and psychological terms, what is thirst? It's D-I-S. What's the word that comes? If you, you know, if we're, we should drink and eat until we are, what's the word? Satisfied. Right? And you're thirsty, you're dissatisfied. If any man is dissatisfied with his spiritual experience, let him come to me and be thoroughly satisfied. That's one way you could put it. Thank you, brother. (laughs) Amen. All right, that's the thing. We have access. Through by one spirit unto the Father. Now we say these things and we don't want to encourage, you know, we can respond wrongfully to that. Oh no, I'm def- deficient. I don't want to be seen to be deficient, so you know, I go around pretending and, and or you can't be real. If you are going through some spiritual uh, struggle, then you don't want to be honest about come on, brethren, come on. Let's not go there, right? We're all just worms. And there's not even Winston Churchill here, so there's no glowworms, right? Right? We're all just redeemed sinners. We're all here to help one another, to love one another. Love lifted me. I didn't lift myself. How about you? And so, if love can help lift others through me, praise his name. Right? If I'm out of sorts, I want you brethren to help me, not look down on me. And that's my heart towards anybody else. Let us not let the glories of the new covenant and the expected 
experience of them turn us into hypocrites that are pretending to be something we're not. Amen? Yeah. Let's, let's be real and go after God. Through him, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. Let's not lose sight now in the details of the big picture. Paul has been bringing Jew and Gentile together as one and then bringing God and man together as one. And look at this progression. Uh, Verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners. It's far away. We're going to a strange land, strange to me anyway. You could say objectively strange. Visit my wife's family, a conspiracy amongst our children to send us away on a holiday for our 35th wedding anniversary. It's a loving conspiracy. Not trying to get rid of us. They want us to come back. She's got family over there. We're going far away. Strangers and foreigners. You are no more strangers than foreigners. Watch the progression. But fellow citizens. That's in the nation. You belong to the nation. And of the household of God. Now you're in the family. Built upon the foundation of the apostles. You're part of the building. In whom all the building fitly framed together. Groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the spirit. You've gone from being far away. To a citizen in the country. To part of the overall household. To part of the house itself. To being a place where God himself lives. Can you get any closer to God than that? Gone from being far away. To as near as your breath. That's the journey. That's why he goes from one metaphor to the next. He, he, He walks us through it. In language. From being distant. To being an habitation of God through the Spirit. <clears throat> Strangers and foreigners. How are we doing for time? We can skate through some of these things. Um, let's look at a, a couple examples of each. Genesis chapter 23. This is Abraham. Sarah has died. I think Sarah's the only matriarch we're told how old she lived. One of you Bible students can straighten me out on that afterwards if I'm wrong. I think it's unusual for the women, but there it is. That's how important a woman Sarah was in her life to be studied by holy women. Abram came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Genesis 23, verse 3. And Abram stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Seth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. You can look at that formal exchange of entreaty where Abraham is requiring goodwill on their part, for he had no right. Stranger. He's there with them, but he's still a stranger. Our starting point was we weren't even with them. (laughs) Far away, far off. A stranger, even when he is in the congregation of God's people, is far from God. He doesn't have the rights of the kingdom if he is not or she is not walking in fellowship. Stranger, foreigner, visitor. 
Exodus uh, chapter 12, some of the things that belong to the stranger, or if you want, and it's primarily exclusion. Uh, it's a funny thing to own being excluded. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 43, this is a Passover. The Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. It's important, brethren. What does a Passover represent? In the new covenant. It's a sacrifice of Christ for sins. And no stranger benefits from that redemption. There is, if you, uh, we won't spend the time on it, but you can make the link in your mind. There is the connection between that and the man in the parable that Jesus told without the wedding garment. You can't be a stranger to God and partake of the benefits of the new covenant. No stranger is going to eat thereof. Leviticus 22, verse 10. This is now the the, uh, priest, right? There There shall no stranger eat of the holy thing. A sojourner of the priest or an hired servant shall not eat of the holy thing. To partake of the graces of God, the benefits of the new covenant, you can't be a stranger. Remember, Paul is saying, (laughs) you were once, right? You were once uh, strangers and foreigners, but no more. Now you're fellow citizens. With the saints. Now you can eat the Passover. Now you can eat of the holy things. Part of the household. You sit at the table. With the lamb. And you partake of the lamb. You're of that nation. Right? A citizen is um, originally had to do with the dweller in a town. Expanded uh, subsequently to, to include the rights of a permanent local resident. Not just a passing through. You're native, right? You have all of the rights that pertain to all of the people who are local there. So citizen. Citizen of heaven. Just think about it. You're citizen of heaven. You have legal rights. You know, here, and I know um, loads of rights were violated under the pretext of pandemic uh, restrictions and so on. But you have rights. Citizenship. Now, as Christians, we don't fuss about those things, but you've got rights. Um, <clears throat> right, uh, you know, here in Ontario, you have a right to health care. You have a right to access. If you break your ankle or something, you have a right to have, um, go to the hospital and have it treated. If you're a visitor, you don't have that right. You're going to be paying for that. So all kinds of rights of citizenship. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? You have a right that's given to you by God. It's not because you deserve it, because God wanted it so. You're one of his children. You have a right to go into the presence of God and make requests for his will to be done. 
You have a right to the help of God in the same way that his son had a right. You think of the Lord Jesus and he's there in the garden and he says, thinkest thou not that I can now pray to my father and he should give me, I think it was 12 legions of angels. Even though it would not have been the will of God for Christ to resist arrest, if he had chosen to do so, the angels would have been there. of a son. You've got the rights of citizenship. The rights to angelic assistance never speak to angels unless they physically appear to you of course. But you don't just kind of pray as if there are any angels around help me. You're going to get into trouble with devils if you do that. That's not a biblical practice. Don't be doing that. But you have a right to ask your father to provide assistance. They're sent forth to minister for them which shall be heirs of salvation. Know your rights. Have you ever heard that in popular society? Read, read, you know, read our, our laws and so on. Know your rights, uh, brethren. Read up on your rights. All right? There's lots of them that you might not be aware of. You have a right to step on the devil. On his neck. You have a right to fling him off if he tries to get on your back. You have a right before God. The devil has no right to vex you, to oppress you, to whatever. That's one of your rights as a citizen. All right, let's be, be clear on that. Um, it's a, it's, the citizen is a member uh, of that country. You're a citizen of heaven. So uh, let us, <laughs> you want to fight for your rights? Fight for those rights. Okay, we might lose. Look in, in Numbers 15. Um, the word citizen, our English word citizen, is not used um, in the Old Testament, but the concept is very plain. It's one born in the country. Verse 13 of Numbers 15. All that are born of the country shall do these, these things after this manner in an offering. Excuse me, after this manner, in offering an offering made by fire, a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if a stranger sojourn with you, and will offer an offering made by fire of a sweet savor. As ye do, so shall he do. And he's talking about laws that will apply to all. Right? One born of the country. You've got the rights of citizenship. That's why you've got to be born into the kingdom. It's not just a legal transaction. It's a spiritual birth. <clears throat> Verse 19, he talks about being of the household and uh, family of God. He takes this up in, in chapter 3 and verse 15 of Ephesians. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Family's intimate. Um, I don't know if I'm accurate in this, but, uh, or if this is common, but when I think of family, I think of the dinner table. Uh, I hope it's not just because I'm hungry right now, but I think that's where all the family is usually gathered. Throughout the day, you might have this one doing chores there, those two there. As a parent, you might be with one or several of them, but usually the whole family is together at the table. Is that realistic and reasonable um, feeling I've got? Not just a carnal hunger. Family. And there's fellowship. 
There's friendly fellowship. It's talking. There's laughing about what happened here. And there might be something serious that happened there. There's sharing. There's commonality. The whole family of God. There's an intimacy. We've gone from being far foreigners to family. In heaven and earth. Even the, the, the gap between heaven and earth is um, blurred. We were uh, with friends that we haven't seen in decades. Uh, actually, this one we had seen in, in recent years. So she visited uh, from British Columbia. We were with other friends we hadn't seen for decades. And I can't remember which friend was telling us. You know, they're all, <laughs> they were all older than me when I first knew them. And they've maintained that uh, um, age superiority. So they're in the 70s and 80s and so on. And their friends, you know, you, you get an age where... Your friends are dying off, and it's who's going to be the last one to go, you know? Who's going to be the loneliest at their funeral? Because all their friends have gone, and it doesn't work out. Was it Yogi Berra who said you should always go to your friend's funeral so they will come to yours? It doesn't work out that way. If you come to my funeral, I won't be coming to yours, right? Think about why. But they're at an age where people are dying, and people talk about almost dying and coming back. And near-death experiences are um, known things. There are a lot of fakes out there, but there are, uh, quote-unquote, scientifically documented records of books, you know, people who, who have had out-of-body experiences while they're on the operating table. They've seen things on the roof of the building or on the, as they've, and come back because, you know, they died and didn't. And it's been documented. Think people, researchers have gone and found the actual artifacts that nobody else physically could have known. And so these things are discussed as, as to why believers, religious believers, take that as further evidence of life after death. And scientific skeptics either dismiss it as fake or try and come up with other explanations. And one woman, I think she had some visions or, or something... Uh, but she didn't die. I don't remember who was telling us. It was one of the sisters that we met with while we were away. But she said they, it's like a very thin membrane between us and heaven. Heaven's not far away. It's just right here. And this, the veil between us is very thin. Perception. I think it was your Uncle Frank, Tina, who I was talking with. Either you or Sean and Diane. Heaven is big and clean. He was, you know, he was, he was one step in while he was going around here telling everybody about it. Uh, the whole family in heaven and earth. Some of us are so absorbed in our petty little earthly hobbies that we're largely ignorant of the greater family gathering. Of which we are already a part. Like children, you know, absorbed in the corner with a toy and they're oblivious to all the adults and so on are in the room. You know, we've all seen it. But they're part of the family. They're treasured. The whole family. Ah, in heaven and earth. <clears throat> no more strangers, fellow citizens of the saints, of the household of God. Now we're coming into a building. He's shifting his metaphor. Um, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Oh, how much time could we spend on the temple and the, you know, the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. 
Paul just skates by it, and I suppose we can as well. He's alluding to what he said in, in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We're built upon the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ being the head. And so you have the foundation, Jesus. And the apostles to whom he committed the doctrines. And we are resting on them. We're resting on Christ. But others are resting on you. Think about that. It's not only about the foundation that's holding us all up. Who are you holding up? Who's on top of you? Who are you supporting as we all are? You're, and this is God. God is building you into his building in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Peter takes up this same thought in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Uh, He starts in verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And he shifts to the temple. To whom coming as unto a living stone, right? To the Lord. Disallowed indeed of men but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Lively stones, living stones. Not the deadness of the letter, but the life of the spirit. The, the, the metaphor is limited. You're placed in the building. But you're not a lifeless thing like a brick. You're part of a structure resting on that which is beneath you, but holding up others. But it's life, not death. Life, not inaction. Uh, And he's coming to a point in whom all the building, right, fitly framed together. Remember this unity? Jew and Gentile brought together, but, and we, we, if we had taken the time in 1 Corinthians chapter, um, I think it was 12, drink into one spirit. All the body. Members coming together. There is a unity in Christ. Of every member joined together. The whole building fitly framed together. Everyone fits. Everyone fits. There are no misfits in the kingdom. And if the devil puts it in your mind or your own flesh. You get that out of there. You are not a misfit. You're not a misfit. God forbid that lie of Satan should ever dwell in you. You're being fitted by the greatest craftsman in the universe, the very God of heaven, fitting you perfectly into his building, which is made up entirely of precious stones. Read about it in Revelation. Hallelujah. No wonder Paul saw this clearly. He wasn't just being poetic and ministerial when he talked, you know, beloved of God. He saw it. He saw the beauty of Christ, what was presently done and what was going to be accomplished in each one. And he delighted in the beauty of Christ in each believer. We can admire that same beauty in one another. 
all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We started out strangers and foreigners, that which is furthest from God, to being the habitation of God through the Spirit, that which is nearest. Paul's walked us through all the stages. David wrote in a psalm that strangely we remember at funerals, Psalm 23, but at death, but it's really about life. He finishes, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's about life. It's about living in the house of the Lord. Psalm 27, I believe, verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord. And inquire in his temple. Look around you brethren. That's the beauty of the temple. And the glory of God in it. Revelation 21. You know. Saw new Jerusalem. Coming down from God out of heaven. That's the city. Of which you're a citizen. And then the metaphor switches. They, they have no need of the sun. Right. And the Lamb is a temple, Lord God. How is it put in Revelation 21? And this is the thing. Revelation 21. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. That's verse 3. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them. And be their God. Verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun. Neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the lamb is the light thereof. Verse 22. Said I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty. And the lamb. Are the temple of it. David. If he wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord, in the temple of God, what he was really saying is he wanted to dwell in God. And God wants to dwell in his people. And there is no greater union and unity than that. It's glorious. This is what we've been called unto. This is the, 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 the work in progress and the end goal. And from that place, this should fill our hearts with a richness, with a hope, with a joy. Paul could say, I, I, Paul said, I could wish that all men were as I myself am. He wants to bring as many people to this glorious place as he can. And you and I want to go out into the world like this. Is gather them to Jesus. Share Christ with this knowledge of this closeness to God. And this being indwelt by God. And share Christ with others. So far from just a duty. Oh I've got to talk to this person. you know. <laughs> so far from that. Rivers coming out of your innermost being. Flowing to others. Well, our time's gone. I hope I've provoked us to, to soak in these things. To um, 
meditate in them. Let it thrill our souls and, and worship him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, our consciousness, our, our conscious thoughts may move from subject to subject through the day, but oh Lord, you strengthen us to follow Christ Jesus, to walk with him, to grow, Lord, part of this holy temple. Later, Paul will talk about reaching the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. Dwell in us, Heavenly Father. Fill thy temple with thy glory. Minister to all the life and power of Christ. And gather many unto thyself. We commend one another, Lord, into thy keeping, care, leading us. As we heard earlier, leading us in thy way. Until that glorious day when we see thee face to face. Be with each heart now, Lord, as we continue in fellowship and depart company from one another in body but not in heart to serve and glorify Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.